0: Oborn and Heller on Cricket. Brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, I'm Peter Oborn and I'm in Wiltshire. Hello, I'm Richard Heller, I'm in South East London. Now Richard, you were telling me of an event of some significance which took place last week. Yes, I had my first cricket net
0: outdoors in London's Maida Vale, guesting with the Paddington Rabbits under social distancing conditions, and it worked very well. All my deliveries went to their planned place, and uh, I think all the batsmen hit them to their planned place
1: as well. Did it feel natural, uh, you know, any special procedures, or was it just normal?
0: It was fairly normal, and I had to think a little bit about keeping apart and how to return the ball mostly kicked rather than handed over. And um, none of the, uh, you know, embraces and high fives that characterise our normal nets. <laughs> well, <why not>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a relief. <laughs> One um, distinct difference, usually when, you know, I appear in any net, you know, a, a bowl in them, usually a horde of local batsmen arrive in the hope of sharing some of the feast. But not this last appearance. It was, it was just ourselves.
1: And looking at the matter more globally, we've now had a game of cricket in Guernsey.
0: We did. It was apparently a great success. It showed the possibility of cricket in social distancing conditions. Of course, it's worth reminding perhaps some of our listeners that Guernsey is not part of the United Kingdom. It belongs to the Queen as um, Duchess of Normandy, and it's not subject to the English Cricket Board. They can make their own rules for cricket there. But uh, it's very encouraging that cricket was able to return to the British Isles, as it did. They completed their 10-over tournament in St Vincent in the West Indies in the test match ground there. But the major news is, of course, that we're now definitely getting a West Indies tour here in England in uh, July. And almost certainly a Pakistan one to follow with a sequence of six test matches in biosecure conditions in the two grounds which have a hotel attached to them.
1: Now, I can't see any reason in principle why... Quite a large number of spectators shouldn't attend these matches so long as they sit, you know, at a bit of a distance from each other. They're not going to have any live spectators, the test matches, but they
0: may allow spectators if a slim down county championship resumes, as it might do in August, <laughs> mainly because um, long before the virus, uh, county championship attendances allowed for social distancing Very, very easily. You could pick your own seat uh, at almost any occasion and you could stay as far away from anybody else as you as you liked. Uh, so the county championship may have spectators, but no other form of cricket is going to have them, and I still personally think that's going to be something of an ordeal and a strange experience for the players.
1: I also think it's completely unnecessary. I mean, I'm not saying that we should have 30,000 people in the Lord's match, but I can't see why we shouldn't have a scattering of three or 4,000 to give a bit of atmosphere. And... Um, I have to say, I do feel a kind of envy for the people of Guernsey having the Queen in charge of them in her capacity of Duchess of Normandy rather than the wretched ECB English cricket board who don't seem to be dealing. Well, I cannot understand why football is allowed back before cricket in the month of June. Can you? I can't understand it at all. It um, seems to vitiate the government's claim
0: that all of their decisions are governed by either science or common sense, because I can't see any science in
1: allowing football ahead of cricket, and I can't see any common sense in it either. Yeah, I mean, because basically cricket is socially distanced by nature. Anyway, let's move on from that, because it gets me too cross. (laughs) We have been deluged by requests and comments and analysis from listeners on the subject of cricket and literature, because many people think we made wrong judgments or overlooked crucial books in our last discussion of cricket and literature about a month ago, wasn't it, Richard?
0: I think two weeks ago, it's a little more recent, but certainly the suggestions and responses have been piling in and there is certainly more cricket fiction than we were able to do justice to in our last effort, so uh, very glad to return to it and we probably will again
1: because people have a great enthusiasm for cricket and literature and they keep pointing this out to us. And indeed the reception to the, The Test by Nathan Lehman, which we discussed with the author a few weeks ago, has been amazing. It is. very much
0: hope it's um, done something for his sales, because it deserves to. But uh, yes, indeed, very big response. And um, that book really shows the possibilities of um, cricket in fiction and um, in the atmosphere it created and in the sort of, I think, a very important theme that he develops, the contrast between cricket life and and life outside cricket. And um, it's still a surprise to me that there isn't more.
1: When it was reviewed in Wisdom by Tanya Aldred, who's one of, We we already rate her, but she said something which I'm not sure is right. She said that cricket is peculiarly unsuited to fiction. Perhaps such a complex game ends up sucking the lifeblood out of authors as they strive for description. Do you think that's a fair comment, Richard?
0: I'm afraid not. I have a great admiration for Tanya, but I think on that one she was talking what P.G. Woodhouse would describe as absolute rot. For one thing, cricketers themselves are natural fiction writers because every cricketer I've ever known and played with, including myself, is a natural liar. Have you ever known any batsman, batter, I should say, who's admitted to being just bowled by missing a straight ball? No, I mean, back in the pavilion, the ball becomes absolutely unplayable. It becomes a ball of the century.
1: <laughs> you know, yes. an
0: amazing turn, incredible bounce and skid, or late swing and dip. And bowlers are liars, too. I mean, they have their own mystery balls. I certainly have a big repertoire. And fielders, you know, never miss catches, uh, just miss catches. They're always, like, distracted by a giant hornet. So there's, you know, cricketers are creators of fiction, uh, as I say, because they're liars. Looking, though, at, a little more seriously at cricket and fiction, I think the game has certain things that are, you know, are very suitable to a novelist. First of all, even a T20 match is quite a long time dramatically, if you think about it as a piece of theatre. There are a lot of um, individual moments, there are phases, and um, fortunes can change rapidly. And even, (laughs) as I've just said, even net sessions can have a great deal of drama contained within them. I think the game is sequential, a very important factor, a ball is bowled, then it's played by the batter, then it's fielded. So there are a lot of individual moments, good and bad, and you can bring in you know, every player on the field. Well, you can expect to have a moment.
1: That is, of course, your wonderful first cricket novel, I think it was. A Tale of Ten Wickets is about that theme, isn't it? The, the two teams are playing each other, but within the team, there are 11 players, all of whom are going through some form of personal, private drama. And so that takes you into a really interesting study of personal interest, personal uh, myth against public events.
0: Well, thank you for, uh, thank you for saying that. Um, that is indeed the theme that I was... That's the whole theme of Tale of Ten Wickets. There is... Everybody on the field has got some kind of personal drama. It's got something that um, defines him or her. And um, sometimes you know, they can express and come to terms with their personal drama on the field. Sometimes they they can't sometimes as it's where their inner life, their cricket life and their non cricket life fundamentally diverge, and that's you know very fascinating to write about and very easy to write about in the case of cricket, I feel
1: of course, one of the themes of even actually at the top level you get the player who will play always for the team Ben Stokes, a classic example that when defense is required you'll defend when you need to go on the attack he he attacks and the other players who play absolutely for themselves in a self-interested way Geoffrey Boycott who we all love and admire and was emerged as one of the great commentators but his batting was always open to the criticism that it was always done overwhelmingly with an eye to his average at the end of the season and he rarely played if ever for the team itself and so they've got all these very interesting dynamics
0: Yes, I think you've always got a blend in cricket of selfishness and altruism. And um, it's very important in any team to keep it in balance. You do need players who actually drive themselves to um, perform you know, superbly for their own sake, living in their own space. But you also need players who support others. And as Nathan at Lehman showed very much in his book... Which describes a long partnership between two players who are pretty antipathetic at the beginning. Um, long partnerships in batting depend on mutual sport. One player takes a bit of the strike or gives the strike away when when his partner actually wants it, and and when his partner can score more off
1: it. So, um, yeah, of course, there the- are players who do exactly the opposite. Who notoriously will avoid the faster bowler when he comes on, or the unplayable spinner, and will allow the rookie batsman or the other batsman to, to just to take it on the chin and possibly even feel a vindictive pleasure when that batsman or bat, batter is out uh, and that's a very notorious and noticeable theme in in test match cricket you can see it you can see it. i'm not going to name people but there are a lot of there are famous players that are coming to mind as i speak Well, it happens
0: at the lower level as well, as I'm sure we've seen um, in our own careers. We've played with players who like to get at the other end when an unpleasant bowler is bowling or who suddenly develop a terrible shoulder injury when they're bowling at a really top-quality batsman. So, you know, it happens, it's part of the drama of cricket and um, a great deal of captaincy in cricket is about managing this drama and trying to get the personal dramas and characters of cricketers to, you know, to work collectively for the team rather than being focused on each other.
1: It's one of the reasons why certain cricketers gain a real affection in our hearts and minds you know like Fazan we both love Fazan Mahmoud because he was famously he would he was a cart horse if needed he would just come in wearily over after over after over when the best batsmen were playing on a perfect wicket but then he was an absolute killer bowler on bad wickets and he always gave a hundred percent when there's a game there are lots of examples of people who just the moment there's a good batsman on form suddenly gets a niggle. Mm-hmm. Or and, the, and a batsman, of course, who won't go into bat suddenly gets a niggle when it's, it's seeming around the place and there's a lot at stake and suddenly want to be dropped down the order or locks themselves notoriously, you know, in the lavatory it, is one of the yes, things. Yes, the things lavatory the or
0: develop, develop a fever. Um, one very famous test career was basically created by, as a substitute for a player who didn't fancy force bowling, and that was Zahir Abbas.
1: Yeah, we won't name the batsman he no. replaced. Nope. Zahir Abbas came in in 1971, was it, I think? Yes. In the that was Lord's it f- Test, I think. First English tour. Yeah. And yep. um, he came in and he j- incredibly difficult position conditions. Alan Ward, who was a very, very fast, wild, fast bowler, had just hit the opening batsman at Gul on the head. Zahir came to the crease and he was out. I think he scored 214, was it, Richard? Two seven four.
0: Yeah, and at Edgbaston. Edgbaston. And um, but Zahir only came into that into the test squad because another batsman simply didn't fancy playing a fast bowler at a county game, and Zahia came in instead at number three and made the place his own. So he got his opportunity fortuitously by to another player's you could say
1: selfishness or cowardice even.
0: Well, you know, we all have our moments. We all, you know, I wouldn't reproach him for that. But um, things can sometimes work out for the best, even. Uh, it's one, again, part of the charm, part of the drama of cricket. Somebody huh, somebody's behaviour you don't approve of sometimes can work out for the better of the team.
1: Maybe it's a good moment to quote Edmund Blunden's wonderful passage in his great work, Cricket County. In 1930, it it is one of the secrets of the great games that the losers, the majority of us, are such regular and valuable performers. We toil on happily in every corner of the world, the hoips and scraps upon whom the great ones base their triumphs. Without us, where would they be? We do not grudge them their glories, but we have our private world in which, after all, we feel Comfortable enough. The good egg occasionally glitters all gold for us there, and we don't complain because it's not delivered by the score or the gross. It's rather lovely, isn't it? It's mm. it's it's, it's that describes the world we live in and our occasional compensations no. for mediocrity, Richard. Well, very
0: much so. I mean, the, another great quality about cricket is that it gives you. As we say it gives you a lot of moments. And very occasionally, even the worst of us do something absolutely perfect on the cricket field. We do something as good as our hero. Our hero does it time and time again, but we do it maybe just once in a season, maybe even once at nets, and that's all that you need. You can believe that you've got another season in you, and it keeps us all going. And um, Blunden, I think, spotted it. Blunden was a, spotted this quality very well in that passage. Blunden was a, <laughs> a terrible cricketer, so everybody says. He... Um, played in a literary, one of these literary cricket teams called the Paladins with another apparently terrible cricketer, Rupert Hart Davis, the publisher. And um, he wrote Cricket Country during the Second World War. It was another example of writing about cricket as a kind of vanished rural ideal. But he loved that, that kind of cricket. He wrote about it very well and he, he loved playing in it.
1: I love that theme of moments, which is another one of those insights of your wonderful book, where you say everybody is redeemed. That- Sudden, amazing, sharp catch caught at second slip, or the ball which somehow goes effortlessly to for uh, through extra cover, or whatever it is. There's or that. In my case, that amazing leg spinner where it dips in and turns, which happens about once a year and takes off stump. I mean, mm-hmm. all these are glorious moments which which we lower figures, us mortals, have to cherish. We're given this moment of godlike satisfaction.
0: Yep and we get them i mean we <laughs> cricket's quite generous in that regard or, or at least we don't have to have very many of them to go on believing in ourselves and um you know it uh, one moment like that, on the field, can not only redeem your um, day on the field, but it can actually redeem your whole life. You know, you can make you feel that um, life is not a complete mass of despondency and failure, and it, and it's worth, you know, not just carrying on at cricket, it's worth writing another novel or another movie script
1: or whatever it is. Um, it just keeps you going. We, As I say, we've received quite a number of letters or emails or calls from listeners and several of them have brought up the subject of cricket in Finnegan's wake, James Joyce. And since he is, according to some people, not according to me, the greatest writer in English of the 20th century, that seems quite something we ought to discuss.
0: Well, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> I agree with your view of James Joyce. I try and read Finnegan's wake about once every decade, and I, I give up on it. And I I haven't got to, I think it's page 583, where um, the great cricketing passage comes up, but there's a terrific passage. Uh, He did love cricket, James Joyce, and um, played it as a schoolboy. And um, there is a long passage where his two central characters make love to a a sort of erotic montage of cricketers' names. It begins wherever she... Forgive my accent. Wherever she drove, behind her stumps, for a Tinsley wink through his tunnel-cleft bag slops after the rising bounders Yorkers as he stud and stoddard and trotted and trumpered to see had Lord Harry's Blackham Bobby Abel. You know, it, it does take some imagination to put a lot of late Victorian
1: cricketers... Bobby Abel was Surrey, wasn't he?
0: He was Surrey. There's uh, So who have we got here? We've got Tidesby, we've got... Tunnycliffe Stud, we've got Stoddard, we've got Trot rather than Trutted. Victor Trumper, of course, of Australia, his beautiful batsman. Tunnicliffe Blackham, yes, Bobby Abel just mentioned.
1: Yeah, Bobby Abel uh, was a very dour figure indeed, sort of fairly short and squat, but formidably effective, particularly on a bad wicket. There's a biography of him by David Kynaston, or Kynaston, who wrote that joint book with Stephen Fay about Swanton and Arlett. And it brings out this durness of the able character, and you really can't think of somebody less appropriate to turn up in the middle of a sex scene written <laughs> by uh, James Joyce in yeah. Finnegan's Wake." Yes, of course it's not in there, but W.G. Grace
0: gets a lot of um, punning references in Finnegan's Wake. Big cricket fan, Joyce. It um, you do have to get through a lot of Finnegan's Wake to get to the to the cricket passages, and I don't think he's ever going to be classified as a as a cricket writer, as a cricket. Well, except then,
1: except it comes back again and again. You get it, don't you, in Portrait of the Artist, which is an easier read than Yes, uh, that's, Finnegan's that's Wake earlier. by some yep. distance. He goes on about cricket quite a lot. That they said pick. Pack, pock, puck, little drops of water in a fountain slowly falling in the brimming bowl. It's quite beautiful, that. It's a description really? of the sound of cricket bats through the soft grey air. Yes.
0: Yeah. Mm, it is beautiful. He would be. <laughs> I do like to imagine. Uh, James Joyce never got a, um, an obituary in wisdom, unlike his disciple and his secretary, for all time, Samuel Beckett. I'd like to think of James Joyce's wisdom obituary. I think it would follow the pattern of Beckett's you know showed early promise as a schoolboy law bowler at Clongo's School, but later turned to experimental literature <laughs> um you know after and uh as a terrible mistaken you know departure in his,
1: his <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on the I mean it does draw attention though the two greatest even some would say Irish writers of the twentieth century, Joyce and Beckett. And, of course, Joyce, you know, was the inspiration for Beckett. Beckett was his pupil, his research assistant for Finnegan's Wake, and both of them cricket fanatics. And that's very surprising. And I think that it, partly it shows the intensity, which some people don't have forgotten about, of Ireland's cricket tradition, that certainly before partition in the South, it, it was then almost the national game, before De Valera tried to move away towards gaelic sports and somebody like joyce who got a conventional middle class education was had loads of cricket and then joyce loved cricket his pupil and student beckett loved his cricket he did he played for dublin university and he played first class cricket and of course many people would say that pinter is the the british playwright not the irish playwright but pinter it's really a popularisation of Beckett in the same way some might say that Beckett is a popularisation of Joyce and Pinter, of course, famously adored cricket and set up his own cricket team and wrote actually beautifully about cricket in many, many ways. Now you have a very interesting tradition.
0: You do. As you say, very strong Irish tradition was attacked by, you know, by devil Valera. It just shows how cricket can be vulnerable to um, political and sort of cultural interference by a hostile government. But it's obviously never gone away. And it's, um, you know, very powerfully revived and delighted to see Ireland taking its place
1: as a, you know, full
0: member country.
1: And indeed, uh, produce some of the most brilliant players of our time. Now moving away from Joyce, we've also we've had a letter or two about Peter Whimsey and Dorothy Sayers, haven't we? Yes. A, um, a
0: listener pointed out that um Peter Whimsey, Dorothy Sayers' hero, is a brilliant cricketer at Eton and Balliol, and one of her mysteries murder must advertise is a very cricket's a very integral part of the plot. Um Whimsey's trying to pass himself off as a an ordinary player, you know, he's under an incognito, but he's just, he gets hit by a fast bowler and he can't resist showing that he's a really class batsman and retaliating against the fast bowler and he almost gives the game away. But he, he finally gets the murderer through a cricketing clue. And I won't do a, a spoiler because um, perhaps people will enjoy reading it. But yes, he was a very much, you know, he's a cricketer. I might just point out uh, from another listener that Flashman is a cricketer the anti-hero of Tom Brown's school days. He's revived by George MacDonald Fraser. In Flashman's Lady, in the second one, Flashman takes the very first hat-trick in cricket, and needless to say, he does it by a, a thoroughly dishonest appeal. So it's um, subverting the Thomas Hughes tradition of cricket. for It's a game for manly empire builders. It's also a game for, for cads and cheats, and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that conveniently takes us on to Simon Raven.
1: <laughs> well, we got a letter, we had a long letter from somebody who absolutely is the opposite of a cad or a cheat, the irreproachable Muin Afsal, who worked for many years as a sort of one of the sherpas at the Pakistan Treasury uh, and he's on sits on the board of so many of Pakistan's great companies. Now he has written to us at some length following our discussion last week about Simon Raven. And saying we didn't take Raven seriously enough, do we accept Muin Afzal's strictures?
0: I think I would. Yes, I think we should put our hands up to that because um, Simon Raven's, you know, is very funny, very subversive as a writer. But if you read Simon Raven's novels, particularly the Arms for Oblivion sequence, they do tell you a lot about English social and cultural history in the 50s, and they there's a sort of overrunning. There are a lot of cads uh, and bounders and um, chances in Simon Raven's novels because that's kind of part of his message. English life, including English cricket, is the gentleman and the traditionalists are giving way to the chances and the, and the cads. And it's a very powerful theme. And, and he works it through very well in all of those novels. He wrote one standalone novel, Close a Play, which sort of brings the, this theme very strongly out in, and it has a lot of cricket in it. And it's really a novel in which the gentlemen strike back at the cads at the end. A brilliant schoolboy cricketer becomes a sort of louche, decadent, but very successful figure. He becomes a sort of high-class pimp and brothel keeper. And he's summoned back to a match at his old school in front of his old headmaster. And I um, don't want to give anything too much away, but he's actually murdered um, by the gentlemen, by the traditionalists. To um, preserve his image for the, um, as the pure, honest schoolboy for the headmaster
1: it's going to quite extreme lengths in order to maintain somebody's reputation We're, to murder uh, them, but uh, yeah, he yeah, pulls we, it off, does he? this?
0: don't want to give too much away but it's pulled off in a particularly apposite cricketing sort of way <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, uh, one I 'd recommend anyway
1: now we, we nevertheless. Do we still think that J.L. Carr is the premier cricketing novelist of the last 50 years?
0: it has got a very strong claim. We did mention A Season in Sinji very rather briefly. It's quite a short novel. It's a very bleak novel. And it puts cricket into a completely new context of class struggle and people's lives being ruined by the English class system. It's basically three men tangled together, it's set in World War II. Three men have a, have a tangle. They tangle in love, and they tangle together in the remote RAF base in West Africa. And they tangle over cricket, because there's a cricket team there. And um, one of these characters is an officer, Turton. And he uses his power as an officer to wreck life for all the other players. Virtually everybody he encounters, certainly all the other ranks, including the cricket team. He takes over the cricket team, he wrecks the cricket team. The original founders of the cricket team kind of fight back, just, and the cricket team, they seize, as it were, seize back the cricket team from him and uh, in its very last match they get a very symbolic hard-earned draw. It's very symbolic cause that's the best they can do in the face of the class system. The working class will fight back and they can just about get a draw. They can't win. Um, as I say, a very bleak novel takes the cricket out of the context of, um, you know, sort of happy
1: rural idyll does this book you make it sound almost analogous to those the classic works which like the loneliness of the long distance runner by Silito or the sporting life by story de- dealing with different sporting life was rugby league i mean dealing with different sports but very much emphasizing uh, the class struggle or the the class element in british life
0: they were yes they, they were roughly contemporary but all three books products of the 30s the other two books, more familiar as films, very successfully filmed, and they are about this theme of sport as class struggle. A, a, sport is a way of the, uh, the lower classes not accepting the establishment and fighting back against it uh, with varying degrees of success.
1: I want to move on to a quite a rare case of a cricketer uh, of some distinction who's also a, a very serious writer. And I first became aware of it when I sat next to PJK Gibbs as he appeared in the school book for Derbyshire in the what in the 1960s 60s mainly. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I sat next to him at, at a wisdom dinner actually about 10 years ago and he was an enchanting man and he, I asked him what he'd done after cricket and he'd become a, a screenwriter a scriptwriter and he, he lead writer for the heartbeat police series and also wrote really what looks like quite a serious cricketing novel have you read this one, Richard, uh, PJ um, I'm
0: looking forward to reading this one. I know quite a lot about it. It's been recommended to me by um, a lot of people, including our good friend Stephen Shawk, which is almost a recommendation in itself. Very much so.
1: Anything which Shawk says has to be acted on, I tend to feel. Yeah,
0: Everybody agrees it's an extremely authentic portrait of county cricket in the, in the 1960s, obviously from which Peter Gibbs knew from the inside. It's a dramatic story of an ordinary match, an ordinary what seems like an ordinary county match, has got a tremendous sort of personal drama going on within it.
1: A bit like Nathan Lehman's The Test then, isn't it, in very that way? So. yeah. Of course, PJK Gibbs, for those who don't... I used to follow him. I remember when I followed the county cricket scores. he opened the batting for Derbyshire. He was a workman-like cricketer. Occasionally, he would score a century. Normally, he was... But he always opened the batting, which is very tough, particularly in those days on these seeming wickets and he averaged I'd say low 30s for about five or ten years uh, before um, well, and he was a regular or, fix yeah.
0: Ten or eleven I mean he scored his thousand runs every year which is then the measure of um, what, you had, what a county cricketer had to achieve he was capped was always difficult being an opening batsman in Derbyshire. Wicket seam up there, and um, don't get all that many high scores up there, and high averages up in. Very Tarbyshire.
1: chilly as well, playing up in Buxton. Can
0: be, yeah. I went to school in Derbyshire, and uh, the, <laughs> the wind can blow there
1: sometimes. Do you know I? I'd love to have him on to inter- interview Peter Gibbs about cricket in the 60s, and also about how you then evolve and apply those skills you learned on the cricket field in a completely different sphere as a writer.
0: It is. His novel, uh, Settling the Score, was published in, I think, uh, 2012. It's quite a long time after he retired, but it's a very authentic novel about the 60s. The off-field life is um, very authentic, too. Cricketers had a lot more <laughs> a lot more nightlife in those days, and um, that's very well observed, too. And it's interesting that he can remember it so well after a gap of, perhaps, record it so well, after a gap of
1: nearly 40 years. Paul Morrison's wondrous oblivion. Which was made into a film, I think. Started out as a film. Yeah, it's novelised
0: afterwards. Yep.
1: Mm. That is also on that time, isn't it? The 60s. Uh, It is.
0: It's intended for children, but it's actually got a lot of content for for adults. And it is set very firmly in 1960. A 12-year-old boy, who's cricket-crazed, London boy from a Jewish family, is coached by the West Indian neighbours who move in. And initially, his family are trying to, you know, make it in English society, become accepted. And originally, for that reason, he betrays them. But then they get united again through cricket. And um, it's a very, very happy ending. They actually are all playing a cricket match in which um, Frank Worrell and Gary Sobers, you know, join in, which is a very nice fantasy. Uh, but it tells you a lot that, uh, though intended for children, it does say a lot about... English social history in the and cricketing history in the in the sixties certainly I was twelve when I was exactly the same age as the the young hero and I can remember I wasn't a victim of racism but I can remember everything that sort of shaped his life and the, and his cricketing heroes
1: that uh, scene playing cricket against Warrell and Sobers means that you can date the novel absolutely precisely to the summer of nineteen sixty three because that was the team led by Frank Worrell and with Sobers absolutely at his peak it was one of the greatest ever test series in England because you had that great West Indian team you had a a real great series because West Indies won with that great hunt century in the first test and then you had in the second test at Lord's it could have gone either way the match seesawing and Cowdery coming out with his broken arm at the very very end to save the match against a thunderous wes hall and then truman at the very end of his career producing one of the great spells of test match history to clear up the the um the west indies second innings in the third test it was one of the great match tours and also made particularly moving because frank worrell who one of the rare players really who transcends cricket altogether is a figure about the emergence of west indies on the global stage of he would have become one of the great statesmen, and tragically died in his very early forties, and was lost to us. And Sobers went on. So that was you can date that novel to that great year of cricket. There is
0: in that era. Just one tiny little correction that always needs to be made. Very brave of Colin Cowdery to go out in that last Wes Hall over, but um, it should be recorded that he didn't actually face a ball of it. Of course, he went to yeah. the non. He went to the non-striker's end. And the chap who saved the game for England was the the incumbent batsman, David Allen. David I mean, Allen, yeah. yeah.
1: I, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I stand correct here that you're right. It was Allen whose broad bat kept yeah. out the Wes Hall Thunderbolts. Absolutely. I, want, I want to move on to the... Um, We've had a lot of emails from people about two very significant novels, neither of them written by a British author. Joseph O'Neill's Netherland, that's 2008, and Sheehan Kurunatilaka, Chinaman, 2010. I'm ashamed I haven't read either of them, but I feel confident that you will have done, Richard.
0: Well, I I have read both of them. They're both superb novels. They are novels that could not have been written by an Englishman. One is set very firmly in America. They're both about cricket, but one is about cricket in America and one is about cricket in Sri Lanka. They both have a sort of common theme in a way in that both of them use the idea of cricket as um, a search for personal and national redemption. Let's deal with Netherland first. Netherland is set in um, New York just after 9-11. It's a time of great displacement in American society, great upheaval. Two men meet through cricket. They meet through cricket on Staten Island, where we've played ourselves. Mm. And um, Joseph O'Neill is very accurate in describing Staten Island cricket and um, the conditions under which it's played. Anyway, two men meet. One is a Dutch banker living in New York, and the other is a um, West Indian living in New York. It's got a bit of a secret life, which I won't reveal. But they both meet through cricket. They're both looking for cricket as a means of uh, belonging to something in a strange, out-of-place world. The West Indian is looking for something more. He's looking to restore cricket to its uh, place in American as America's summer game, restore it over baseball, which has conquered it, and he, wants, he sees that as a path to national redemption for the United States. And that theme is very powerfully handled in the novel. But very importantly, it's a novel in which cricket is a game played by Outsiders in American society—it's a something um, not part of American life. It's a, a strange
1: pastime. Does relate to a when we are, we went on a two or three week uh, <laughs> tour of the United States, organised by Mihir Bose, the great Indian cricket writer, well, British cricket writer of Indian heritage, who's written that great history of Pakistan, uh, Indian in- cricket. Indian cricket, yeah. But what we found actually on our journey was that. The teams we played tended to be West Indian or Asian when we were in New York or in the East, and uh, more Asian-stroke South African-Australian when we were in the in Hollywood, in California. And the only place we really found sort of soccer mum-style cricket of the kind you associate with the kind of personnel you associate with baseball or American football was was in Philadelphia, which I think is probably correctly thought of as the where cricket started in the United States.
0: Uh, Philadelphia has always been the biggest centre of cricket in the United States. It's still pretty strong there. Um, though, of course, they have a baseball team. But um, uh, we played at Philadelphia. It was, a, it was a, the best organised club, the best ground we played on. Philadelphia housed most of the great American cricketers of the 19th century, including a bowler. Uh, who in his time was regarded as the best in the world. Bart King, who bowled was magnificent, um, was a magnificent seamer, uh, specialised in late swing like Wasim Akram
1: and Waka Yunus. That was when the uh, American cricket team probably could give England or Australia of the time, or South Africa of the time, the three imperial cricket nations, a beating on a good day. Is that fair? They,
0: They would have been... A match for yes, on a, on a as you say, on a good day, they'd have been very competitive, and they would have fitted into the early test cricket of those days very well. And it was a great wrong turning for cricket when um, they denied the United States international competition, as they did. The
1: Imperial Cricket Conference was that founded shortly before World War One was a triangular arrangement, and obviously the United States of America didn't fit into that imperial definition.
0: Unfortunately, not, and a great wrong turning. Moving on to um, Chinaman by, i um, not sure I'm going to get his name right either, Shihan Karuna Tilaka. This is another um, novel in which cricket is a means of personal and national redemption. Very much a Sri Lankan novel, gives a terrifying, often terrifying picture of Sri Lanka in its era of um, civil war and terrorism and ethnic conflict. Uh, in, against that background, uh, it's the story of an alcoholic sports journalist looking to make, rediscover and make a documentary about a legendary Sri Lankan bowler, a sort of precursor to Muralitharan, uh, but he's a mystery bowler and he's a slow left-arm wrist spinner, which you're now not allowed to call a Chinaman, but... Uh,
1: in those days, he could, and it gave the title to his novel. Where does this term, Chinaman, come from?
0: Well, it's attributed to a test match, in the uh, an England-West Indies test match in the 1930s, and it's attributed to Walter Robbins of England, who was dismissed by a slow left-arm wrist spinner bowled by a West Indian of Chinese descent, called Ellis Achong. And uh, Walter Robbins, who was a very huh, forthright man, to put it um, diplomatically... Bigot is the word you're using, uh, perhaps. All right. Stormed into the England dressing room and grumbled about this and said, fancy getting done by a Chinaman. That The name stuck
1: not just for the bowler, but for the, the, the delivery. It must say that i have not surprised that Sri Lanka's produced a great cricketing novel, because if you look at the... Emergence of cricket in Sri Lanka is something which relatively few people comprehended. It was against the background of uh, one of the most tragic uh, civil wars of the modern era. And it was a very difficult period with the, which saw eventually the uh, obliteration uh, of the Tamil areas in that very tragic finale. And of course, that embraces all any number of individual tragedies and one very fascinating study, which is muller possibly the greatest bowler of the modern age, spin bowler, who was a Tamil. Hmm. And how t- muller will have dealt with that conflict within himself is a fascinating question, and it's a major story. It reminds me of uh, the kind of conflict of loyalties engaged in... in when the secessionist struggle happened in Pakistan... Uh, in the late 60s and uh, leading up to the creation of Bangladesh in 1971.
0: Well was, but I think the Sri Lankan conflict went deeper because obviously it was mm. confined to, as it were, one small island. And um, some of the descriptions in Chinaman of what went on there are really quite harrowing. You've got um, people being rounded up on a bus journey um, by, you know, Sinhalese extremists and made to pronounce certain words, shibboleths, and if they're Tamils, they're taken out and shot. That's described in there. It was a dreadful racial conflict. The Bangladesh secession had um a great deal of suffering and terrorism, but at least it was, if you like, it was you know, it was fought between two different wings of a country, you know, separated widely in distance, and it was it eventually reached some sort of closure. You know, Bangladesh became independent and Pakistan carried on its own path.
1: I think so, even so. I the scars of that conflict still remain are still very deep, Richard, and well, as, as we've seen. I mean, it's uh, something which cricketers defined the whole generation of Bangladeshi cricketers who were torn between playing in the Pakistan National Leagues or breaking away, and, of course, they broke away in the end.
0: Another novel we've had recommended to us very strongly by Nathan Lehman, as a matter of fact, which is a strong recommendation, is um, by Anthony Quinn. Not the actor in Zorba, was film critic of The Independent. It's called Half the Human Race, and it's, a, it's the story of a triangular relationship between two cricketers and a suffragette before and during the the Great War. The historic and social content of that novel is very, very well described. The cricket is just occasionally a little bit off-kilter, very occasionally distracting, but overall it's a, a very good novel, very good page-turning novel. Let's quickly mention that Geoffrey Archer wrote about cricket quite often. He's a big cricket fan. References in his main novels aren't always accurate as far as cricket is concerned, but he wrote a rather charming standalone short story called The Century, inspired pretty clearly by the younger Nawaba Pataudi. Mm-hmm. It's a very rather charming, rather old-fashioned story. It could have... Um, it's got an ending of an exhibition of mutual chivalry between the Oxford captain and the Cambridge captain, which could have come straight out of a Victorian schoolboy story, and I don't mean that in an uncomplimentary
1: way. Absolutely not, This. Many of those Victorian schoolboy stories were magnificent, I think. And that mm. would, of course, have been the Nawab Batardi before that wretched car accident, which caused him to lose one eye yes. uh, and turned him from being one of the greatest cricketers of all time, which he would have been comparable to Bradman, I think, mm. uh, to just being a, a decent journeyman test player. Not bad at all. Well,
0: I think a little better than journeyman, but certainly not absolutely. You know, he didn't never reach the height that he would have. That he would it is have amazing to. And it's yeah, astonishing. I mean, he, he played with one hand. eye, and the uh, virtually only a few months after losing his eye, he was playing at a test series in the West Indies against some of the fastest bowlers in the world. Gilchrist
1: I would have been amongst them. I'm guessing.
0: I think Gilchrist have been sacked. I think he'd been sacked by then, but they still no. had they still had no. Hall, and I think Griffiths was in that. Griffiths was in that series the bravery um, he,
1: of hmm. nawaz Batali, who was such a romantic and he really an attractive figure and only um, died a few years ago actually
0: yes that's, that's right finally we ought to mention a great discovery by
1: our friend um, afsal ahmed in karachi we have received a lot of interesting communications from afsal who's taught us so much about the game of cricket and has set right so many of our mistakes too i have to say
0: he is. He's a amazing cricket collector and statistician in Karachi, though he's professionally a banker. He really should have a post as Wisdom's errata editor. Uh, <laughs> he really should. Because oh, I think he could correct, single-handedly, any Wisdom since it started in 19- in 1864. Uh, but the great discovery that Afzal gave us was that um, Gary Sobers put his name to a novel. You really ought to have known that, given... I should have done, because he was um, my mastermind. Subject of mine, in fact, in my first final. But um, I hadn't known that, and I wish I'd known that when I met him shortly before that final. We could have compared notes as novelists, since I couldn't possibly compare notes with him as a cricketer.
1: But you met Gary Sobers. You didn't raise the bat. you'd both written cricket novels.
0: I'd, well, I hadn't... Um, I wasn't aware of his cricket novel. It's called... Um, it's a novel intended, I think, for children... It's called Bonaventura and the Flashing Blade. It's on order. I'm looking forward to reading it. It's, interestingly, it's a sci-fi novel because it's about a young chap who's a, a good cricketer, but he's a computer geek. And this is the, it's set in the 1960s. Remember when computers were still pretty new and were massive and had to live in their own room? Not a sort of personal computer, but it anticipates, by about 50 years, the use of... Computer data to make, many, almost manufacture great cricket teams and great cricket players.
1: We always said that Gary Sobers was a man ahead of his time.
0: Well, he is in this, quite startlingly ahead of his time. He writes himself, I gather, into the novel. Some of it's in the first person, so looking forward to reading it, and I'll give a report when it arrives.
1: Now, we didn't find any novels in our so far dealing with women's cricket and also the very important theme of cricket in the northern leagues which is often neglected by the kind of official accounts of english or british cricket
0: i think that's right i think that's a, a whole obviously huh, what an entire gender i think so far ignored in cricket fiction and um, basically an entire region and an you know an entire classes of, uh, of english cricket ignored as well
1: I mean, it's all all this sort of lost pastoral village, rural cricket is all very well, and we can get misty-eyed about it. But actually, at the heart of recreational cricket are the northern leagues. Well, not just recreational
0: cricket; they are the passageway for very, very many cricketers into the professional game, and they're the only thing that they are a vital part of the structure of English cricket. Nobody's. As far as I know, nobody's treated them in fiction.
1: I tell you yeah. what, though, I mean, C.L.R. James, the greatest cricket writer of all time from any country, he, of course, wrote about it. I mean, his accounts of seeing Wilfred Rhodes go out to bat and so on, marvellous.
0: are, yeah, and, of course, he was very close to Constantine. Yeah, very um, Constantine. L- 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 Constantine, was... who made his... Um, Really made his name in English life as a league cricketer. Uh, for for Nelson. for
1: Nelson, wasn't it, in Lancashire? He that he played for, I seem to remember.
0: Yeah, and they're very. C. L. R. James describes uh, Constantine and Nelson very, very well. But that this is fact. Nobody's used this this whole setting, as far as I know. Nobody's used this imaginatively yet.
1: Well, maybe uh, we're missing out some unknown masterpiece. In which case, please mm. write an in a, and Richard's got a. You've got an address to write to now, haven't we?
0: We do have our own address now, which I'll repeat: Oborn Heller Cricket, all one word, at gmail dot com. I'll repeat that:
1: Oborn Heller Cricket at gmail dot com. But um, don't send send uh, synopses of books or novels, still less M S uh, to that address, because we will steal them. Afraid so.
0: It's, that's the um, that's the way of it. It's a great danger for any writers. So uh, please write your novel by, and hope you get it published or I hope you find an agent,
1: but don't send it to us. <laughs> I hope that listeners have enjoyed today's conversation because I have really enjoyed talking to you, Richard. I've enjoyed it hugely too, Peter.
0: Always a pleasure. It reminds me of our railway journeys in Pakistan together. Just mentioning, if I may, one other... Letter I received from a very nice um, lady listener. And she's asked us to use the term wherever possible batter rather than batsman, and I think that's fair enough. Because of the rise of women's cricket, it's right, I think, to use gender neutral uh, words whenever we can. It did occur to me that there is still all the other terms are gender neutral except one, and perhaps I could put in a plea for listeners to come up with a gender neutral expression for third man. <laughs> Because third person sounds absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> <Did>
1: you... <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant point. How do we deal yeah. with this conundrum?
0: Thought of, I mean, I thought of one or two myself. They're not terribly descriptive. Deep gully or deep angled point. But I'm sure listeners can come up with something better than, than that. And if they do, please, again, give them to that, that email address. Obornhellercricket at gmail.com. On which note, it's goodbye from me, Richard Heller in London.
1: And goodbye from Peter O'Born in Wiltshire.